This is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings. And it'd be awesome to see you behind the scenes on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. However, to our episode today, and it's no secret that I have a passion for marketing, and I'm thrilled to welcome a truly special CMO today in the form of Des Cahill. Now, Des is the Chief Marketing Officer for Oracle Customer Experience Cloud Suite, or Oracle CX, an integrated set of marketing, sales, commerce, and service solutions that power customer experience for thousands of leading global brands. Prior to Oracle, Des was the CMO at Cario Technologies, marketing to over 60,000 SMB customers and 5,000 channel partners. Before Cario, Des was the CMO at Insighton, where he helped grow the customer base from 10 to 100 and revenues from $2 million to $14 million. Des has also, though, spent time as CEO, having founded and grown Habeas from 0 to 450 customers, $9 million in revenue, and raising three rounds of venture financing. But before we dive into the show today, finding a quiet space for a phone call or video conference has always been a challenge. Conference rooms are always taken, so I found myself taking calls in the hallway, the bathroom, the corridor, you name it. That's why I was so excited to discover Room. Room helps businesses build a better workplace with thoughtful, sustainable products. Their mobile soundproof phone booth helps you tune out the noise of the open office. It's soundproofed using recycled plastic bottles and fully ventilated to keep you cool, even if office conversation gets heated. It ships flat and it's easy to move around and assemble, and actually you and a team member can assemble it on site in under an hour. I have to admit, I've personally use the room booth in our office and having a shared personal space really transformed the way we work and just feel about our office. Plus the booth itself is beautifully designed and blends in well with our interior. With room you can also create a quiet space for phone calls, video conferences and focused work at a fraction of the cost of building a separate conference room. That's why companies like Google, Nike, NASA and Salesforce have already chosen room to build a better workplace and room offers free shipping and the best price on the market. And as a special offer to our listeners we're partnering with room to give you a 100-day risk-free trial. Go to room.com slash sasta to learn more. That's room.com forward slash sasta. And speaking of products I love there with Room, I've always been blown away by Chorus.ai. It's the number one conversational intelligence platform, allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that really close deals. So whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps more effectively, or clone winning talk tracks, head over to Chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll, and more amazing companies already loving and using Chorus. And every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. This time we'll hear from Justin Goodhue, founder and CEO at Trellis. Trellis is an event management platform for charities and non-profits. Trellis enables event organizers to easily build beautiful event and fundraising pages to sell tickets, collect donations, and automate their workflows. Hi, Harry. All your customers are important, but your very first customers are extra special. To be successful, you want to have amazing relationships with them because they're going to define your product and where it's going. And I can also tell you that those amazing relationships are going to be hard to maintain because your first customers aren't always going to be your ideal customers down the road. But they're the reason why you are down the road. And never forget that. Those first customer relationships are very important. Thank you, Justin. And totally with you there. Keeping customers happy is the only way to grow your business. And you can also find growth with a combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. But you've heard quite enough from me, so now I'm delighted to hand over to the wonderful Des Cahill, CMO at Oracle CX. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. 
Des, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. Huge thanks for joining me first. Harry, it's great to be here. I'm excited and let's get on the show. Absolutely. I would love to start there with a little bit about you. And so for some context, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and how did you come to be CMO at Oracle CX? Well, I made my way into the world of SaaS very early on because I've been in Silicon Valley quite a while. And if I think back to my first days in SaaS, it was really when I was at Apple Computer way back in the dinosaur days when AOL was the king, running Apple's relationship with AOL. Then I was running Apple.com back in the day of 9,600 baud modems and webcasts from Shoreline, like 100 people simultaneously. I left Apple and I worked at Netscape for a while in the early days of the browser, running marketing programs. And then all of a sudden I noticed all around the valley, there were these companies that were doing uh, application as a service. We, We didn't even know to call it SaaS back then. There wasn't even the word cloud, but hosted services, you know, which go back as far as Prodigy, AOL, you can do things online without an application. That really evolved, I think, out of the uh, online services into Web 1.0. And then ever since I say I left Apple in 1997, I've been in the world of cloud and SaaS, but even before it was named SaaS, really. Class, you mentioned that Apple and Netscape, two of the most transformational companies many would argue of our age. What were some of your biggest takeaways from your time there and really being in the trenches and on the front lines at such kind of transformative companies? Well, for Apple, it was very early in my career. So I was probably more impressionable and more of a sponge soaking up the atmosphere around me. And I really learned the importance of execution and integration of messaging design and product and putting the user at the center. So I joined Apple about a year after Steve Jobs had first left. And the last thing I did at Apple on December 23rd, 1996, was cover a press conference when we acquired Next Computer and brought back Steve as a quote-unquote consultant. Little did Gil Emilio know. By then, I had accepted a job to go work at this startup. But my point is, is that even though I was there at Apple for nine years when Steve wasn't there, the impact that he had in terms of his maniacal focus on this, again, this intersection of design, message, and product execution, all centered around customer needs, was something that really uh, baked into my DNA. At Netscape, I think it was what I took away was the incredible power of the internet for hyper growth. I mean, when you were buying a Macintosh, that was a considered purchase. You're spending, you know, $2,500 or whatever. You, you probably bought one every three years. At Netscape, I was running marketing programs for browser downloads. And when we put out a new version of the browser, we would have 5 million downloads in 24 hours. So that was an incredible opportunity to see the power of the internet to reach many people very quickly. Yeah, I mean, wow. Wow, what incredible experiences with with both. I I do want to start there. You said there about the um, maniacal focus on customer and customer experience that you really saw firsthand at Apple. And I've seen you speak before at conferences. And one thing you said that really struck me was customer expectations are more unpredictable than ever today. If we start with an element of causation, why do you think customers today are more unpredictable than they maybe were before? 
I think it goes back to that old Silicon Valley standby of Moore's Law. So Gordon Moore was one of the founders of at Fairchild Semiconductor, which was like a Seminole Valley company. And then he later left to co-found Intel. He was a chief executive or leader at Intel for many years. And Moore's Law simply stated is that the amount of computing power on a transistor will double every 18 months and the cost of that computing power will drop in half. And he made that prediction 52 years ago and it's held true. It's never stopped. So I, I, what I'm saying is, is that the transformation, you know, I'm, I'm the parent of three children aged 22 to 18 and their experience growing up, their technology environment and the choices they've been able to make and the experiences that they've been able to have in their formative years in terms of digital channels and buying opportunities and learning discovery opportunities about products and services is radically different than the experience that I had or even that millennials have had. So I think it's really technology and the pervasiveness of cloud technology, of SaaS technology, of mobile technology. The pervasiveness of technology in all of our lives is fundamentally changing us as human beings in terms of our behaviors and expectations. And I think that Moore's Law continues to roll on. The power that's going to be in our pockets with our iPhones and Android devices is just going to continue to increase. Imaginative entrepreneurs are just going to continue to figure out new and better ways to utilize that power. And I think if I look forward to my grandchildren, their upbringing and their expectations are going to be radically different than my children's expectations and experiences they expect. When we think about the expectations of the consumer state, if that's like the why they've changed, in terms of what they've changed to, in terms of your observations, how is their behavior maybe fundamentally different or changed from the previous generations? Yeah, I would say in general, it would be, I want what I want when I want it and I want it now. So I think there's a level of fragmented attention span that we all have in our work lives and in our personal lives. I mean, the plus side is that the internet and the mobile applications and mobile devices give us access to perfect information. But we're used to that perfect information. We seek that perfect information. We want that perfect information. And we tend to move toward companies that can provide us that perfect information very quickly. So we tend to buy devices from Apple. We tend to go on Facebook to get information about our friends. We tend to go onto platforms like Amazon to do our shopping, even though it's not necessarily the lowest cost provider because of the convenience of a large assortment of goods and the ease of getting it delivered. So price, where in my parents' generation, the driver around decision of what brands associate with may have been driven more by price and value. Today, it's really driven by the composition of the experience of interacting with that brand. I'd rather buy something through Amazon and pay more for it and have the assurance of my charge card being on there for a single click my ability to return products, my ability to get a product in the next day or two versus go to buy it from someone else for 20% less. So I totally get you in terms of that evolution, but it does bring marketing to the forefront because marketing in many ways manages and controls
enables that first customer interaction and a lot of the customer experience journey. So I guess with the changing consumer demands, how do you evaluate the changing role of marketing today and the responsibilities now placed on it? That's a great question, Harry. So before I dive into the marketer, I'd say at a higher level, it's a wonderful time to be a CX professional. It's definitely a growth industry. And the reason I say that is, as as you've astutely observed, these changing customers, changing buyers, because it's both B2B and B2C, they are driving changes in brands, in organizations. And that change is CX is no longer a good customer experience. Delivery is no longer a luxury. It's a necessity. It's the core strategy at a CEO level and a board level. Investment in customer experience software and services is at an all-time high and is, is growing extremely rapidly. Now, to take that down to the functional areas of a company and marketing more specifically, I think the key, the key thing that companies are looking to do is they are looking to centralize their customer experience strategy and treat the customer cohesively throughout the customer journey. And when I say customer journey, what I mean is that I research a product, I receive ads about that product, my journey begins, I buy the product. That's another part of my customer journey. I try to learn about the product from your website or third-party websites by talking to my friends. That's another part of my customer journey. I have a problem with the product. I want to return the product or get a replacement or get the latest version of it or upgrade the software. I decide to buy another product from your company. So that's a, a, a customer journey. And it takes place across digitally from ads and third-party communities, first-party communities. It takes place in stores. It takes part in my real life and physical life with conversations with other people. So organizations are struggling to try to provide a contextual experience across that whole journey. And what I mean by that is if I'm working with a bank and I go into a branch, I expect that teller to know that I'm a very loyal customer. I've been with a company for 30 years. I've got a lot of money with that bank and I expect them to treat me appropriately. I don't want to be treated as a separate person as I interact with each part of your company. I want your phone, your contact center, your person in the bank and the mobile app all to understand me and know me and know that I'm trying to refinance my house with you and to treat me accordingly and to make my journey frictionless. So the burden on marketers is that, Harry, as you have observed, they are essentially acquiring customers and welcoming them into the fold, welcome, welcoming them into the household. So marketers are acquiring that customer and they want to make sure that that customer has a good experience in sales, service, and on the website in commerce, not just through ads and the website. So increasingly, the marketer is becoming, in many organizations, the de facto owner of customer experience and playing this role of ensuring there's a contextual journey for the customer in their entire life cycle with a brand. I'm totally with you. I mean, the big question, though, that then I kind of ponder on and ask myself is, okay, so if they own that kind of entry acquisition funnel, there is a moment when you have to hand off in more traditional kind of enterprise SaaS to a sales team, or if you have specialization within your team, which is another question. But there is a moment when you traditionally hand off to the sales team. That can cause a lot of friction within the customer journey. They may not know the customer as well, obviously, because they don't have the relationship. They may not have the context. How do you think about removing friction in the handoff between marketing and sales? 
Excellent question. I've been a CMO here for Oracle CX, but I've been a CMO in many companies in the Valley. And, you know, my two most important partnerships are with the VP of sales and with the VP of, or the engineering leader and the sales leader. So that marketing to sales handoff is always a tricky one. Marketing wants to produce a high quantity of leads and sales would prefer to be getting, they want a quantity of leads, but they want high quality leads. So that qualification process, you know, we can talk at length and I'm sure you've covered cover this in many of your podcasts about the integration between marketing automation systems and sales automation systems and that making that handoff seamless from a technology perspective. But I think more importantly, what is going to best inform that handoff from marketing to sales is the data around the customer or around that lead, around that prospect. What do we in marketing know about that customer before we hand them off to sales? What's the right time to hand them off to sales? Who in sales should we hand them off to? And how should we represent this handoff? Are we handing off a customer to sales immediately after that person logs into our website and download the white paper? Because we know that this person works for a national account. And we know that this person has been to the, this national account has been to the website 50 times recently. We already do $2 million in business with them a year. And this person's in that buying part of that organization. If that's the case, that person should be directly handed off to our national accounts sales team without stopping. You know, do not pass go, just go get routed directly in because that's a high value target that has already is in a buying pattern. On the other hand, if we have someone coming to our website and we have their IP address and we think they're associated with a certain brand, we don't really know much about them. It's probably not appropriate to push that over to sales. That's more of a nurturing opportunity and someone for us to monitor. And they, they may be in an unknown state. We don't know that customer's name. They haven't logged in. But how can we personalize the website for that person based on an understanding of the kind of content they've been looking on at our website or, or in our mobile application? And the next time they come to the site, even though they're anonymous, how can we continue the conversation we started having with them about routers or about you know the particular technology? they were looking at. So I think context is key. What do you hand off to where in sales and, and with what message? Call immediately, nurture longer. And all of that is based on having a as deep from a marketing perspective, you need to have as deep an understanding about that particular lead or prospect as soon as possible. And that really boils down to data and data about that customer. Totally with you in terms of kind of being data rich around the customer. I'm super interested because you mentioned the interplay there between sales and marketing. And one area where people often struggle with marketing where they don't with sales is kind of the measurement of success. With sales, they often think dollars close per quarter. And then with marketing, it's like, how do we measure that and the success of marketing? Now, this obviously depends on brand marketing versus you know, alternative forms right. of marketing. But how do you think about it? And does it have to be tied to a number directly like allocated to revenue or is it something else? Well, attribution is an age-old marketing dilemma. At Oracle or in an you know, in any enterprise company, we are going to touch an account 60 to 80 times before we get them in our pipeline, in our, in our forecast as a qualified opportunity. And those touches can be on websites. Those can be be from events. Those can be downloading white papers. Those can be sales conversations, right? So the question becomes, well, which was it if we sold a $50 million deal to Acme Widgets? 
Acme Widgets went to 20 different Oracle conferences. We've had seven meetings with them. They've been on the website 15 times. They responded to six different campaigns. So which one of those things drove the conversion? The answer is yes, all of them. So you you know, you have a lot of attribution models, which are LIFO, last in, first out. Ah, it must have been that one event we did because they closed the deal. They attended that one event and we spent, you know, a million dollars on that event. We got a $50 million deal. Therefore, we had a 50x return on that event. So that's a bit of a simplistic way to look at it. I think the way marketing should measure itself is on how well marketing is helping sales fill the pipeline and achieve its revenue numbers. Ultimately, marketing and sales are partnered together to achieve revenue targets. So that's the ultimate measure. Now, of course, within marketing, there are tons of KPIs that can help you look at how healthy all of your multiple touch points are driving toward supporting that pipeline and that revenue. You know, you can look at PR and you can say, how many impressions did I drive? You can look at at social and say, how many follows and retweets do I have? You can look at your AdWords and say, how efficiently, what are my conversion rates and what's my effective cost per lead? So there's many different KPIs, but marketing is ultimately a marketing mix where you have to use many, many different channels, especially in enterprise. You know, it might be a little bit different in CPG or, you know, direct to consumer, but in enterprise, it's definitely a a multi-touch environment. I have to say, I couldn't be more excited about the change in marketing because we spoke there about kind of the integration that they have with sales. But then if we actually kind of dig a little bit deeper, so much of the content that marketing now produces and provides is used post-sale to retain customers and engage them, as I said, like post that transaction. How do you think about this transition then also of marketing from pre-sale to post-sale and almost as part of the customer success team in many ways? Right. Great point, Harry. It's like endemic to the success of any SaaS model is the notion of a a recurring customer, ideally customer for life, but in more finer terms, a minimal churn rate, right? A high renewal rate. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you want to be operating, you know, 85%, 90% renewal rate you want. And not just for financial reasons, you know, the direct financial calculation, discounted cash flow, lifetime customer value calculation of that single customer. Obviously you want that because it's cheaper to retain a customer than it is to pay the marketing costs to get a new customer. But you want happy customers. You want that discipline of creating happy customers because it says your business is healthy and then word of mouth marketing. So in terms of marketing's role in that, Harry, I think of a lot of it, what we practice here at Oracle is around strong community. So part of my marketing organization is a customer advocacy group, and we drive a lot of customer advocacy activities like online community. We drive customer advisory boards, user groups, forums. We drive content on best practices on how to use our software. And we tell a lot of stories about how their peers have succeeded with our software. We, at our conferences, we try to program our conferences and have our customers speaking and telling their stories so that our other customers can relate to that and understand how our customers, their fellow customers have been successful, you know, with Oracle and in our ecosystem of partners and solutions. And that inspires them. So I think a lot of that ability to retain customers and fire their imaginations about the art of the possible and what they can do with Oracle CX is by allowing our successful customers to tell their stories to the rest of our customers, our most successful. Totally agree. I think it's really key to have your customers kind of front and center and let them do the talking for you. I I do do want to touch on another element there. We spoke about the change in uh, the consumer demands. We spoke about the change in marketing as a role. I do want to speak about the kind of the change in you as a marketing leader. So thinking of your 
your leadership and being slightly self-reflective almost, how have you seen your style of marketing leadership evolve and adapt over the years? Well, again, very good question, Harry. So, you know, Apple was sort of my formative years, uh, nine years, and then I went into the wild and woolly world of startups for 17 years as a CMO. And if at Apple, I was sort of a sponge learning all these different functions within marketing, because the wonderful thing about Apple is it reorganized every 15 months, which was kind of chaotic. But for me, it was wonderful because I got to do a different role, work in different markets, work in finance, work in HR, work in product, work on Apple.com. So I had all these different roles. In my startup phase, it was definitely learning how to bootstrap and learning a lot of guerrilla tactics, learning how to be hands-on and build things up from the ground up. I would say I've been at Oracle now four years. And the wonderful thing about Oracle is it's a fantastic brand and platform from which to implement 30 years of marketing practice and experience. I would say what I've had to learn here at Oracle is, and it's, it's been great, is how how to, as I have a much larger team and a much larger global responsibility than I've ever had in the past, is how to sort of let go and empower my teams and to trust my teams to drive the day-to-day and how it's less important for me now to be hands-on and drive and sort of, quote-unquote, control everything and more to let go and inspire. So it's definitely moving from hands-on to more laying out a framework and then hiring like really great people and just more empowering them, but giving them directional guidance as opposed to specific guidance. And then, you know, sitting back, watching great things happen. And then as those great things happen, encouraging those things, linking them together with other great things, and then helping my people get unstuck on things. So it's it's kind of a different role, more of a um, inspirational guided leadership as opposed to a, a hands-on specific direction leadership. Can I, speaking of that elevation to the guided leadership element, how do you determine stay? what to delegate versus what not to and what to stay within your remit. Are there certain characteristics or traits of a role where you're like, actually, I'm good with doing that still? And are there other elements where you're like, not worth the time, respectfully? Well, I think of things in terms of concentric circles. And I think at the center of the circle is, if I reflect on my marketing philosophy, I definitely, as a Silicon Valley CMO, I definitely start with the product. And I think about getting the story about the product right. And there's a lot involved there. What's the persona? What's their pain point? What is engineering building? Are we building something that's relevant to the pain points? What's going on with the competition? What are the technology waves in the market space? What's our message that's going to get out there? But my point is, is that you've got to get that product to customer interlock down right. You know, that goes all the way back to Apple and Steve Jobs or Netscape, right? You got to get that interlock right. That's the first core. And so when I came to Oracle first, what I really worked on a lot was for these fantastic products that we have in our marketing cloud, sales cloud, service cloud, and commerce cloud. And we do have amazing products, but I had to work really hard to help the teams tell the stories better. But now I've got great leaders in all of those areas and I can back away from the story. And the next concentric ring was like, okay, if we have this great story, how do I work with our great analyst relations team and our PR team and our events team and our influencers team? How do I get that story told out to more people in the world so people know our story? And then also, how do I tell that story internally to our own sellers around the world? So that was kind of like a phase two. Now, phase three is, well, gee, what new products do, you know, and and again, that's running and that's up and running. So then phase three is, okay, if we've got the story, if we've got the content around the story, we've got our seller 
founders telling the story, we've got our analysts, influencers, events, PR and social telling the story. Then now the cycle starts again. What's the new story? And then what's a new area where I need to invest in? So I'm spending a lot of my time today in two areas. One is customer intelligence. And we have a new product called CX Unity. And I'm very hands-on on that product because that's our new customer intelligence platform. And it is our core strategy of enabling customers to bring together disparate customer data from across their entire organization and unify that and have a single view of the customer to power marketing experiences, sales experiences, commerce, and service experiences. And that's a very hot space right now. And I think that I'll make a bold statement. I think that for the CRM or CX space for front office enterprise software, for the next 10 years, the battle isn't going to be about applications. Transformations for our customers isn't going to be driven around applications. I'll be the first to say we've got the best applications, but I don't think it's about applications so much anymore. It's about the customer data and the intelligence underneath those applications that is going to make the difference. And that's a great thing because at Oracle, we're a data company and we're excited to have the world of enterprise software shift to a data discussion. The second thing I'm spending a lot of time on is the intersection of ad tech and martech. And again, this is driven by data. And this is really where this customer intelligence battle, if you will, is first being fought. And I'm really excited about this area because not only am I working on Oracle CX, but we also have a division called the Oracle Data Cloud, which is this amazing collection of business to consumer data assets, offline purchase data, cross-device identity resolution, contextual advertising tools, advertising measurement tools. So this ability to understand the customer, Harry, to your question before, from the first time they click on an ad, all the way to converting to a customer, all the way to service, marketing plays a key role in that. And we're seeing this intersection of ad tech and martech. So I'm spending a ton of time in those two areas. And again, a year from now, I'll have grown those areas up, hired a team, and I'll be on to the next thing that'll be popping up. There's never a dull moment in the world of CX and ad tech and martech. I'm sure. And I have to say, I think it's one of the most exciting times for marketing in a long, long time. So I can... Absolutely. I was in Dallas yesterday and meeting with a major customer, met with their CMO of a $40 billion company down there. And we were talking about this intersection of ad tech and martech and the role of the marketer and just brilliant conversation is super exciting. When we talked about our customer intelligence strategy, their question was not why, their question was how can we go faster? We can't get to this transformation fast enough. Yeah, I totally understand it and I see it too. So uh, not surprised, but exciting all the same. I do though, Des, want to move into my favorite, which is the, called the 60 second faster. So essentially it's a quick fire round. I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. Are you ready to dive in? Yes. Can one of my answers be 42? <laughs> it can indeed. I, I'll give you a trick and see which one you can do it for. The biggest breakdown in the workings of an efficient funnel, what is it? The biggest breakdown is there's no closed loop back, typically back to marketing to tell marketing what were the best leads that were passed to sales and what happened to that customer. Did the opportunity close? Did the customer have a good onboarding experience? Did the customer renew? Did the customer upsell? So you can hand off leads to sales, feel good about them, but having that close loop to get feedback back to marketing to improve the efficiency of the marketing channels is key. Tell me a moment in your life that's changed the way you think. 
There's several moments without getting too heavy. I'll, I'll say probably the birth of my first child and realizing the responsibility that I had to my child and therefore being tied more tightly to society and community in the world about my responsibility to raise good citizens that have good values that will contribute to the ongoing success of society in our world. I, I think that's probably the biggest responsibility I have in the world for myself that's, and my wife. That's always my favorite answer to this question. It must be a very special moment. Tell me that moving away from the personal and moving from such a special loving moment to who's killing it in SaaS marketing today and why do you think so? From a brand perspective, I had spent some time in Singapore with a company called Grab and they are a conglomeration of Uber and DoorDash and Lime and Bird scooters all in one application. They're doing a really great job of cross-selling services through their mobile app. And when I was in Singapore, you know, I could grab a taxi, I could grab a scooter, I could make a restaurant reservation. And I was doing it all from one app that was following me and making my experience contextual. What makes a truly special CMO? As you said, you've been CMO at multiple different fantastic companies. What makes the truly special CMOs? Yeah, it's a hard blend. I think it's a blend of having that brand orientation, you know, the power of a brand. But increasingly these days, a CMO has to be technology aware and data driven. It's impossible to get away from the importance of digital marketing. And increasingly, many companies are becoming a blend of physical and digital services. So technology savvy. And then to your question from earlier on, Harry, the ability to hire great people, set the vision and let them go and let them accomplish because there's no way to accomplish it all by yourself. And then the final one, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Now you can choose the beginning timeline. It can be the beginning of your career. It can be the beginning of your time with Oracle. But what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of dot, dot, dot? As much as I say that you've got to be data-driven and you've got to be technically savvy, so much of business at the end of the day relates to people and the way people interact with each other. And I would say the thing that I wish over the years, I've learned to really trust my own instincts in judging situations. And I wish that I had learned to trust my own intuition sooner. And that would be what I'd say. I do trust it a lot. I always have. But I think over the years, I've learned to be able to judge candidates pretty quickly, understand customers' needs pretty quickly, understand my team and and whether they need encouragement or support or guidance. So I think it's important as much as, again, we need to be data-driven, I think it's important for people to trust their instincts because there are many situations where there is no Harvard business case on it. There is no data to drive the decision. You've got to trust your instincts and make a decision and drive forward. Des, I feel like I found a kindred spirit, especially in terms of the excitement around the future of marketing. But thank you so much for joining me today. And I absolutely loved having you on the show. Thanks, Harry. It's been my pleasure as well. And I look forward to uh, doing it again in the near future. Now, as I said at the beginning, such a huge fan of Dez and all he's achieved with Oracle CX. And if you'd like to see more from Dez, you can on Twitter. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes on Instagram. You can do that at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It would be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, finding a quiet space for a phone call or video conference has always been a challenge. Conference rooms are always taken. So I found myself taking calls in the hallway, the bathroom, the corridor, you name it. That's why I was so excited to discover Room. Room helps businesses build a better workplace with thoughtful 
digital sustainable products. Their mobile soundproof phone booth helps you tune out the noise of the open office. It's soundproofed using recycled plastic bottles and fully ventilated to keep you cool even if office conversation gets heated. It ships flat and it's easy to move around and assemble and actually you and a team member can assemble it on site in under an hour. I have to admit I've personally used the room booth in our office and having a shared personal space really transformed the way we work and just feel about our office. Plus the booth itself is beautifully designed and blends in well with our interior. With room you can also create a quiet space for phone calls, video conferences and focused work at a fraction of the cost of building a separate conference room. That's why companies like Google, Nike, NASA and Salesforce have already chosen room to build a better workplace and room offers free shipping and the best price on the market and as a special offer to our listeners we're partnering with room to give you a hundred day risk-free trial go to room.com slash sasta to learn more that's room.com forward slash sasta and speaking of products i love there with room i've always been blown away by chorus.ai it's the number one conversational intelligence platform allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that really close deals so whether you want to increase quota attainment coach and ramp new reps more effectively or clone winning talk tracks head over to chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll and more amazing companies already loving and using Chorus. And every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. This time we'll hear from Justin Goodhue, founder and CEO at Trellis. Trellis is an event management platform for charities and non-profits. Trellis enables event organizers to easily build beautiful event and fundraising pages to sell tickets, collect donations and automate their workflows. Hi Ari, all your customers are important, but your very first customers are extra special. To be successful, you want to have amazing relationships with them because they're going to define your product and where it's going. And I can also tell you that those amazing relationships are going to be hard to maintain because your first customers aren't always going to be your ideal customers down the road, but they're the reason why you are down the road and never forget that those first customer relationships are very important. Thank you, Justin. And totally with you there. Keeping customers happy is the only way to grow your business. And you can also find growth with a combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I cannot thank you enough for your support and I can't wait to bring you another fantastic episode next week.